This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AIIA. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim and I teach in the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. Today I am flying solo, sadly without my usual co-host, Alan Gingell, but that is not a complete tragedy because I am very excited to be interviewing two guests about one of the most important, but perhaps difficult to understand, topics in international relations and indeed the social life of humanity more generally cyber or all things cyber and the internets. There is a lot to cover, so let's get started. I am very pleased to welcome Danielle Cave and Tom Uren. Danielle is the Deputy Head of the International Cyber Policy Centre at ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and Tom is a visiting fellow at ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, seconded from the Department of Defence. Danielle, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us, Darren. So if I could get you both perhaps to introduce yourselves a little bit to our listeners, you both work in the cyber area. And so I I assume that means that when you were growing up, you were bad at sport and you spent all your time coding in dark basements. Is that that true? How did you come to to be working on these issues, Danielle? Uh, Sure. So um, I've always sort of bounced around uh, both government and think tanks around this sort of IR and security space. I did a Master's of Security at Sydney University uh, quite a long time ago uh, and I started off my career mostly, well, as a journalist, strangely, but I wasn't very good at that, uh, but at the Lowy Institute where I focused mostly on the Pacific Island region. But I always tried to take quite a digital angle to my work and I just found myself uh, getting quite focused on, I guess, the digital politics, what was happening on social media, uh, what were people talking about online, uh, digital diplomacy and and how sort of, I guess, the, the content of cyberspace. I don't see myself working in cybersecurity, but I've always been very interested in the content of cyberspace mm-hmm. and, and the information flows. So from there, I sort of uh, went into government and uh, I've been overseas for a couple of years. I worked at a think tank in Hong Kong called the Digital Asia Hub, uh, which is run by Harvard University. Uh, and I sort of, uh, this job came up and I uh, jumped at it because I could sort of focus on cyber more full-time. It's always been sort of a part-time interest, but it was growing and growing and growing and I think taking over my other work. So it was nice to sort of land in a full-time position. Riding the wave. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Tom? I think of myself as a scientist. So I did a biology degree here at ANU, in fact, and did molecular biology. And I worked for CSIRO for a number of years in a molecular research lab looking at the genetics of forest trees. And then at some point I decided I wanted to do something different and I applied for a program, the graduate program in defence in the signals directorate. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up doing a number of different jobs there that in retrospect were all cyber-y, but that word didn't really exist back then. Mm -hmm. Um, And then again, time to do something different. So now I'm a visiting fellow at ASPE um, talking about the kind of big picture of the cybers. The cybers. Well, <laughs> that's the topic of today's podcast. So I've tried to break up, or I want to break up the conversation to three broad topics. Uh, and the first one is the cybers, you know, cyber in our lives. And I wanted to open uh, to quote with a quote from you, Danielle, a speech that you <laughs> gave uh, in 2016 uh, as a way of getting us started. So here we go. 
The Asia-Pacific region is there for the taking. More than a billion social media users live on Australia's doorstep and we should be engaging them daily as they interact with friends, news, products, concepts, narratives and new ideas. And then a little later you say, but how can we do that if as a country we haven't yet grasped how the proliferation of internet technologies has completely changed the rules of international relations? So with that quote as context, uh, what is cyber? What are we talking about here? And why might it be failing to capture the public interest that it deserves? Like, why did you need to give that speech back in 2016? Um, I think, uh, and actually when, when you raised that, I have forgotten about that speech. It was a couple of years ago. Uh, at the time, I found myself getting quite frustrated, uh, both with the government and the sort of public discourse in Australia and throughout the region on cyber, because I felt that sort of 99.9% of of individuals were looking at cyber and seeing just cyber security and very traditional uh, cyber threats, uh, which I think are very legitimate and very important. And we should all be, you know, worried about those, you know, traditional cyber threats. But we could see more threats coming down the pipeline, which were non-traditional and were and were about, like what I said before, the content side of cyberspace information. So, I mean, the 2016 US elections uh, and the very sophisticated. Well, I think quite sophisticated cyber interference uh, operations that Russia pulled off and, and continues to sort of engage with around the world. I think we're a great example of, you know, we all had these glasses on and we were, we were thinking about, you know, uh, electricity grids being taken down by mm. hackers, uh, but we weren't thinking about information, either what information we're putting out to the world. And, you know, I, I'm sure you've been stuck reading a couple pieces I've read about <laughs> digital diplomacy, we'll how we that. just don't do it, uh, or we do very little of it. We don't invest the resources into uh, into that space. Uh, but also the information that we're receiving online, we just, for some reason, we think about the internet in this quite siloed way, I think. And, and Tom might have different views. So we can... What's your perspective on this, Tom? What's the sort of elevator pitch for what cyber is and, and why it's important? Why, why should we care? Um, I think it's because the... So my definition of cyber, I guess I should say, is how technology affects the real world. And as time's gone on, digital technologies have more and more impact on what actually goes on. So we've come from a time in the past where... Computers and information technology were used basically to make companies and organisations run a bit better. So yeah. we kind of got rid of a lot of paperwork, logistics got more efficient. But as time's gone on, technology's pervaded more and more of the entire economy, how people decide things, where they get their information from, how critical infrastructure works. And so the kind of consequences of it all going wrong have actually increased quite a lot from back, say, 20 years ago where, you know, a data breach was just data. Now a, a breach might result in in all sorts of far more drastic things like elections being swung or electricity grids failing. Um, so I think the, the consequences have got a lot worse. Yeah, I mean, when I began my career, my first job was in a law firm uh, and this is back in the mid-2000s. And when you thought of internet things, there was an IT department, right? You would send it off to them, they would fix it. Um, but I guess what you're saying is that we all have to worry about these things now. Uh, I think the ways that IT can affect us are increasingly 
it's increasingly powerful and it's also in increasingly surprising ways. So before the US 2016 election, nobody was really thinking we've got to worry about how people are using Facebook mm. to change the face of democracy. That's kind of a surprising thing that happened. And I think that people, um, it's very typical that people don't see the implications of something until after it's happened. And that's the world we're facing. And it's affecting us across all sorts of different fronts where uh, there's the future of work, robots and automation is going to make everyone unemployed and unemployable um, <laughs> to lethal autonomous weapons. You know, the Terminator is going to come and kill us all um, to um, sort of nation state conflict in cyber. It's going to result in, an, you know, the third world war. So these are all possible things, but it's not certain for any of them, how likely they actually are. And it's really hard to tell what we should do about it. Mm. Well, let's try to sort of prioritise or put some sort of more flesh on a policy agenda. It's late October 2018. And let's say that I am a, a brand new member of parliament. Maybe I've recently won a surprise by-election and perhaps I might even hold the balance of power as an independent in parliament. And so that gives me the opportunity to, to set or drive an agenda in an issue I care about, and maybe I care about cyber. And so let's say I call the two of you into my office and say, look, I'm interested in cyber. I agree it's important, but I don't know a lot about it. Um, and I have witnessed embarrassing hearings over in the United States of US senators um, showing remarkable ignorance about how Facebook works or what the internet even is. Um, and I, as a, maybe someone older person, I'm, I'm, I, I acknowledge that I'm very unfamiliar with how the world works in this space. So where should I be looking to learn about this? And what specific areas of public life do you think are sort of the, the highest priority for Australian policy, where there are responses that are both sort of feasible and possible and, and, and needed? I'll, I'll start off. Um, I think one, and I think it's quite a low-hanging fruit, actually. I think one thing that uh, the government or various politicians could take up as, as an issue is just um, public information. So, you know, there are things going on in Australia. There's, uh, you know, we have drink driving campaigns uh, and we have uh, motorcycle accident campaigns and all kinds of campaigns to talk about important social issues that are going on, mm -hmm. that we want to change the behaviour of the direction of those of those issues. But Cyber's one thing, and people talk about this slip-slop-slap, like where is the cyber slip-slop-slap? It's something that affects everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, I have my poor mum on the phone to me every other week because she's fallen for some sort of cyber crime mm -hmm. or phishing scam or really basic stuff, but it's sort of non-stop. Um, and I think there's whole generations of people out there who are engaging with new technologies in lots of different ways, uh, but the government doesn't talk about it in this holistic way. There is, where is, the, I, I actually think, I'm surprised that years ago there wasn't a national campaign. I think that a lot of businesses are out there trying to raise, uh, I guess, the level of information that, mm -hmm. that the public has. But I think this sort of thing really needs to be driven by government. And I'm really shocked that a cyber minister or now cyber sits with our home affairs minister hasn't just jumped on this. It would be a couple million dollars mm. and put together a national campaign that will explain what, what the common threats are for the average Australian. Because most of them don't have to worry about malicious you know, cyber activity exerted mm. by North Korea. They have to worry about cyber crime. Mm. Uh, but we just haven't seen that. And I don't know why that is. Tom and I talk about it quite a lot. Um, you know, is it know. a generational thing? Uh, 
I just think on the on the you know politicians are so busy uh, on their priority list this sort of thing. There's no votes in it. Yeah, maybe yeah. no votes in it. Just not. Yeah. yeah, just not a priority. I don't know why. I think it's also a bit harder to figure out what the kind of practical things you would say are. Mm. So for yeah. slip slop slap, it was slip slop slap. Yeah, yeah. we need um, a slogan. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I agree with you, Danielle, that would be a good place to start. I think there's also a big discussion about social media and disinformation mm. and um, the way that that is affecting the the public square, the, mm-hmm. the way democracies run, because that's where so much of discussion at least appears to take place. Uh, but I was just thinking when you were asking that question, you know, what should a new politician do? It's actually a really hard question because the the scope of what I think of cyber is just so huge. Mm-hmm. And um, but having said that, I totally agree with Daniel. Number one, slip slop slam. <laughs> there you go, listeners. Come up with a, a, a trendy catchphrase, and you could make history. Well, we are going to talk about uh, disinformation. That's sort of my big topic too. But before we get there, there was one area that I wanted to focus on, and that is uh, which I, because I think it affects everybody. Uh, and that is the idea of the Internet of Things, uh, the idea that or the, the fact that increasingly all of the digital devices that we use in the world, whether it's our fridge or our, you know, our home security service, not just our computer, are all wired and connected together, uh, connected to the Internet. And Tom, you co-authored an ASPE report earlier this year entitled The Internet of Insecure Things. Uh, in which you sort of raised a lot of concerns about the security of these kinds of devices. Um, And there were two things in that report in particular that jumped out at me that I wanted to raise with you. Um, The first is the topic of critical infrastructure. So the big, you know, know, poles and wires for electricity, uh, water, uh, power, etc. And you made an analogy uh, to natural disasters uh, and you invoked the 2016 storm that crippled uh, critical services or crucial services in South Australia and cost the local economy uh, upwards of you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Can you flesh out that analogy for us? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I'd just shout out to my co-author, Eliza. Mm-hmm. So she did most of the work and I was lucky <laughs> enough to get a co-author, co-author spot there. And, and she actually came up with that analogy. So the what strikes me about the, the cybers or digital technologies is that it's really hard to absolutely rule anything out. So they're so complex that you can never be 100% sure that something can't happen. And that, I think, is where the analogy to a natural disaster comes in. There's some small possibility that something that you don't, you don't expect will happen. And because you don't expect it, it's not really in your in your plans. You, you don't know how to cope with it. Mm-hmm. So the things that happen often happen often and you develop plans to deal with them and, and you're pretty resilient to them. But it's these kind of black swan events where things interact in a particularly funny way or something just totally unexpected happens and you end up in a world of hurt because of it. Um, so that's where how that analogy works, I think. Is that... Yeah, and... Uh, if you think of the natural disaster context, then often policy responses require some massive tragedy uh, for those risks to manifest before you know people swing into action. Yeah, well, uh, is think, that the worry here as well? I think in Australia we're relatively good at dealing with bushfires, but then occasionally there'll be something that just really surprises us in terms of the the scale or the scope of it. So the ones I think of are 
was it Black Wednesday, Black Saturday? Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. In the early 80s. But also the Canberra bushfire here where we lost yeah. many homes. And these were just totally unexpected events. And um, because they're unexpected, they're really difficult to plan for beforehand. So the good thing about digital technologies is there's a lot of sensible steps that you can take beforehand that reduce the risk or reduce the damage that those kind of events can can have. I mean, even something as simply as, simple as having good backups um, can help a lot. So I think we, we really suffer from the what do we do with those unknown and to some extent unquantifiable risks that I know are out there, mm. but it's it's hard to put a number on how many of them are out there and, and how bad they could be. So I think we've had in recent years a number of global significant events like WannaCry and NotPetya where we really survived by being lucky rather than being any better prepared than anyone else. And these were viruses uh, that affected machines? Uh, I think and... technically they were worms. But okay. anyway, they were self... What they did was they spread really quickly and they destroyed things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and mostly because of time zones, we seem to have escaped relatively unharmed. I think there was like a chocolate factory, a few other firms that got that got badly affected, but, mm. but it didn't wipe out entire companies in Australia. So we were lucky. Yep. <laughs> and, I, and I suppose, yeah, luckiness can breed complacency, uh, particularly when the kinds of policy responses that might be required, do require government intervention, active government intervention. This leads me to a second quote from that report, Tom, uh, where you and your co-author wrote, some classes of Internet of Things devices, however, present little threat to their owners, but their poor security allows them to be co-opted in ways that can be used to harm other Internet users or Internet infrastructure. This is similar to a widget-making factory that causes air pollution. To uh, The factory owner and the widget buyer both benefit from lower costs of production and neither has a strong incentive to do the work needed to reduce air pollution, as that would raise costs. In economics, this is described as a negative externality, and negative externalities can be effectively dealt with through regulation. And Tom, you must mean government regulation there. Now, to me, this is a bit depressing because when I think <laughs> about how uh, successful governments or successive governments, I'm sorry, have tried to formulate policy in another area in which negative externalities are prevalent, which is carbon emission and climate change, uh, it's not a very pretty picture. And this brings me to a piece that, that you wrote, Danielle, um, in 20, last year uh, in late 2017, which cited a BBC poll on Australia's relationship or the, the relationship of the Australian people ha have with cyberspace. And it found that just over half of us agree that the internet should never be regulated. And at the same time, however, other statistics suggested that a great deal of anxiety surrounds the use of the internet. Um, you know, only 31% of us believe that the internet is a safe space to, uh, to express our opinions. And only 12% see social media the, or the social media industry as being trustworthy. So you've got so of two opposing forces, a, a, a reluctance or a scepticism of regulation and the heavy hand of government that's being maybe offset by a lot of anxiety around this new policy domain. Um, what's the path forward here? <laughs> uh, you <laughs> know, given question, how Derek. well we've done on the, 
given how well we've done on climate change, I mean, is there, can we learn anything from that debate or how do you guys think about that trade-off, uh, particularly the politics of it and how, you know, if we, are, if we do need to raise standards for, for fridges and for, uh, for home security systems that are going to make these goods more expensive, if we're going to tell people maybe how they can and can't use these devices because of the, the, the externalities affected. Do you have, have you guys been thinking about this? What, what, what? A little bit. I mean, I don't think there's a silver bullet here and I don't think that there's one path forward. And I think, unfortunately, uh, Australia's going in a direction where, you know, two months ago we had a cyber minister, now we don't. We have a home affairs minister who's cyber, who has cyber interests, but they're very, uh, he comes from a very law enforcement mm. background. So I don't think things like IoT standards will be on his priority list. Uh, that's my opinion anyway. Um, I mean, in terms of Australia's use of cyberspace, yeah, it's quite, um, I mean, in one in the one sense, we're truly addicted, right? We have some of the highest uh, social media user rates in the world. We spend many hours online. Uh, but on the other hand, we're anxious about it, we're worried, and we don't trust social media companies. Uh, and I think that's probably reflected, you know, throughout our region. We don't want regulation, we don't want censorship, yet we look out to a region where we're one of the few countries left in the Asia-Pacific that has a mostly free and open cyberspace. And I think that's something that most Australians don't realise. It's sort of us and New Zealand, Japan and Taiwan uh, and the Pacific Islands to some extent, but the rest of the region is is really heavy, you know, moving towards this very heavy, heavy regulated mm very censored cyberspace. Mm. So I think there's a lot of change in this space. I mean, we've already touched on it, but I think the, you know, our, Tom and I advocating for more, uh, you know, national campaigns around cyber would help. You know, clearly, I think in Australia, we're still getting around, our heads around the fact that the cybers are this thick part of our life that we can't get, get away from. Um yeah, we don't trust the, the social networks that we're all spending many hours a day on, and I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. I mean, I think Facebook's, if there was a poll on Facebook's trust level mm. in Australia and elsewhere, it would be terribly low. But I don't know what the answer is to how we uh, become less anxious about cyberspace. I, I suspect we're only going to get probably a little bit more anxious, actually. Um, There's an interesting tension there as well with if if more government regulation is needed, um, then that starts you down a pathway then leads, that leads to a more restrictive internet. And I remember mm. reading another piece of yours, Danielle, about India, um, even though it's a vibrant democracy, it leads the world in asking for content to be taken down from Facebook. Right, yes, um, yeah, and, that's right. And, and so yeah, yeah, we can sort of start off with good intentions that there, there are concerns, the Australian public you know, has its problems with social media, um, and the government wants to try to address those um, and increase our security and maybe even our mental health. Uh, but there are all these other, you know, actors in the in the region, other governments who, who through a similar lens of improving society, improving security and stability, uh, do things that we that we think are much more problematic. Mm. Um, so the wild west of laissez-faire, open slather is is problematic. But as soon as you, you know, the skept, the spectre of regulation also has a pretty dark path if you follow it down the end. Uh, yeah, so I think the, there's a very good scepticism of regulation because traditionally they've been either ineffective or have large unintended consequences. So the European GDPR, the General Data Protection Re Regulation, defines what companies and organisations can and can't do with personal data. Mm -hmm. And it actually starts with the principle that 
a person owns their own personal data and should decide what's done with it. And I actually like that as a starting principle. Um, and very early on, it states that, however, this principle is not absolute. There's other uses for data and, and governments and corporations need to be able to use data. So I like principles-based regulation. Um, now I'm going to inelegantly segue to something like social media. So, for example, it seems that companies like Facebook and also Google to a large extent have really strong influence on what we see and therefore what we think. So there's some interesting research that even just presenting when people decide to vote in an election, just presenting information in different order affects the way that they can vote. Mm -hmm. And Facebook's done some research indicating that they can change the number of people who turn out to vote, which in the context of a US election where there's non-compulsory voting, it's very easy to see how they, they could actually deliver these yes. swing elections. So in a democratic society, they actually have really strong incentives to at least appear to be non-partisan. Yes. Um, but that's because that's what they think they should do. I think if if you truly believe that they have potentially such powerful levers to pull regarding how democracy works, I think that's actually a place where governments should step in and say, here are the principles we believe in. You should uh, operate in ways that support those principles rather than than don't. So Facebook, Google, they, they're kind of... I think of them as relatively good guys. There's other social media companies from countries that perhaps don't believe in those same principles mm-hmm. that we do, that if they had sway, could could very easily be trying to influence how people think and what they believe in. Um, and, you know, are we just going to rely on their good graces or, or should we actively be trying to protect civil society? So I think civil society should be doing something. And in the absence of anything better than government to represent civil society... <laughs> what you know? What are we left with? I guess that that is a good transition into the international relations aspect of this. Uh, and you mentioned these European sort of privacy um, regula- regulations, GDP, ah, GDPR, General Data uh, Protection Regulation, GDPR. And I, if I remember correctly, Mark Zuckerberg actually said that the kinds of protections that that are guaranteed if you're a European citizen. He, Facebook was going to extend those to other you know, publics around the world. This was in the context of the United States. So the, the, I guess the question here is where do we see um, sort of international cooperation on, on, on these kinds of issues? Uh, is it going to be that uh, one jurisdiction like the EU uh, in the way that it regulates technology companies in its domain has this sort of flow-on effect where those standards get applied around the world? Um, or the other sort of more darker angle is you, know, you said that these guys are essentially good guys, and I think the evidence is, is is mostly consistent with that at the moment. But you have stories like the one broken by the Intercept about Google's project Dragonfly and how they have been uh, building a search tool uh, to try to re-enter the Chinese market that will um, censor you know sensitive terms. Uh, they say you know only less than one percent. Uh, but that can be a pretty important one percent. So you've got these two. You know, you've got positive regulatory actions taken in, in Europe, um, which may expand out. But you've got multinational corporations, which they are um, tailoring their products. With all these sort of issues in mind, how do you see uh, the scope for 
states to, to create treaties or to create global standards or to try to create blocks of, of standards that could that could be you know enable sort of a positive move forward in the, in this area. I think back to the IoT paper, the Internet of Things paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Ellie started out on that, she she and I both thought that at the end we would have some policy prescription where we we would say you should enact this regulation Mm -hmm. but it uh that was basically naive (laughs) because (laughs) australia's got a tiny proportion of the market for iot things yes so if we had a sensible standard for those devices that no one else followed we would probably just lock ourselves out of ever buying another device ever Uh, So it really became a case of here are other standards that people in Europe and the US are thinking about and we should try and sort of swing our weight behind one of those and choose something that makes sense. So I think that is true for many other different standards where Australia doing something by itself is, maybe it's symbolically important, but the the actual weight of the size of our economy is, is frankly not that significant. Having said that, I think that there are some things we should just take a stand and say these are important because of the values we believe in and therefore we should do something. It's remarkable because what you describe is the history of Australian diplomacy in the post-war period. We're too small to, <laughs> you know, to be able to, to build norms and, 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 and rules by ourselves. It's only through participating in a multilateral process. Uh, and it's a shame Alan's not here because he has written on this extensively. Uh, that uh, as a middle power or a top 20 power, however you want to describe us, we have the most impact and can best pursue our own interests through this multilateral process. Are there vehicles for sort of treaties? I and mean, what's the what's the state of play on global regulation? I, I know the two of you wrote a piece last year that talked about some regional initiatives and bilateral diplomacy in, in this space. Uh, what, is there anything happening at the moment or...? I mean, I think the good news for Australia in this space is a couple of years ago uh, in terms of cyber diplomacy, uh, and I mean that in a different sense from digital diplomacy, influencing people online, but mm-hmm. cyber diplomacy. We have a cyber ambassador now who actually used to be the head of the uh, Aspie Cyber Centre. He has quite a big team, and DFAT's gone from doing very, you know, only a sort of, well, a much smaller amount in this space to actually doing a lot. So in quite a short time, Australia's become... I like to hope, quite an influential cyber actor in the region. So there are uh, cyber aid programs going on across Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands. Uh, we're getting very active, I think, in working with uh, Singapore and the UK and the US in trying to start up these sort of more regional uh, initiatives. I think we're doing quite a bit in trying to promote the idea of a free and open and secure cyberspace, Mm -hmm. but I do worry uh, that we talk a lot about it. But, I mean, technically, even in Australia, you know, we don't really have uh, a free and open cyberspace in the way we think we have. So, you know, we do a lot of work on the Aspie Cyber Centre looking at um, Chinese social media networks, which are hugely popular in Australia. So WeChat has approximately 1.2 million users in Australia. Uh, that is a you know fantastic chat up, but it's censored by the Chinese government. Uh, mm. So in that sense, you know there are also uh, apps and you know um, search engines you know in use in Australia which are, are censored as well that we don't really talk about. Um, but in terms of, I mean, Tom, do you want to talk about the UN cyber process? I sort of avoid 
Is there a going down process? Well, yeah, there is. <laughs> I didn't know about it until I started at Aspie, to be honest. Um, and I was just thinking when you were asking the question that there's different levels of, of standards and regulation and consensus building. So there's the, the sort of technical level of standards about how things should work, like you know, what's a suitable security standard for an IoT device? And then that kind of gets bigger and bigger. And at the very top level, there's a UN process called the Group of Governmental Experts on Information and Communication Technology as it relates to security or something like that. Of course so, very, yep. so that gets abbreviated to GGE. Mm-hmm. And there have been a number of agreements where states have agreed basically to the kind of nation-state level security relevant details, things like we won't attack each other's critical infrastructure Mm. in peacetime. Um, So there's, I think, about 15 different things or, as people call them, norms that states at some level have signed up to and then at least some states have just kind of disagreed them and attacked critical infrastructure anyway, mm. like Russia. Mm. Uh, so that that does go on. I'm sceptical about those processes because so far people who've signed up and then ignored those norms have not faced any consequences whatsoever. Yeah. So, well, it's not true that there's no consequences. They've been called out, but they haven't. It hasn't altered behaviour yet. But in the absence of anything better, it's, it's sort of hard to know what else to do. What are the sources of power in cyber? If we think of the, the largest actors, and I assume the US, China, Russia, why are they the most powerful? And does that equate to uh, outsized influence in the development of a regime that governs you know, states' behaviour in this area? Um, I think the sources of power are actually bureaucracy in that I would label the US as the most capable actor. And the reason it's the most capable is it's got the most resources that it can dedicate to a a mission because it's got a well-run, I guess I'd call it a public service that can be harness the power of many people to work towards a common goal. Mm -hmm. So cyber security is so bad that relatively small groups can actually be very effective. China, um, but but bigger groups can do things that are just impossible for smaller groups. So that's where the US, I think, has a, a huge technological and I would call it bureaucratic advantage. Um, they, they appear to be the most sophisticated actor going around. They're withheld by, they're, they're sort of restricted by their sense of duty and what the right thing to do is and by international law. So China and Russia are less capable sort of technically, but they're less restricted by mm. a sense of duty or the right thing or, or, or by lawyers. So in a way, that's kind of an enabler. China and Russia, you know, they can also harness large numbers of people and and also North Korea. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. There's also the power of individuals, right, and of netizens from particular countries who, you know, I mean, Taiwan's a great example. You know, if the president of Taiwan says something on Twitter that uh, isn't 
isn't well liked in China, you'll see, you know, tens of thousands of netizens jump the firewall and sort of attack mm. that position. Um, so I think that's quite interesting as sort of, I think there are now 1.4 billion social media users across the Asia-Pacific, the bulk of those being in North, North Asia. So I think that sort of netizen uh, power is really increasing and we're seeing that play out in a couple of different ways around the world. So that's another interesting sort of aspect to it. One more quick question before we move to disinformation and election interference. And I guess this is for the international relations students out there who want to do research and write essays in this, in this area. Are there any other sort of major sites of contest where you can see the US and China, Russia, the EU, the other the major actors sort of duking it out and, and trying to assert themselves? What are the things that are up for, up for grabs right now? I mean, my assumption would be you know, the way in which the internet is regulated sort of in the developing world um, is one where you could go down a China model path or you could go an EU model or you could go a US model. Uh, and I can sort of imagine various ways through diplomacy and other forms of statecraft that, that those three major powers could try to prosecute their interests in Africa, Asia, Latin America. But are there any sort of areas that, that come across your radars that you where you see contest, where you see... Um, great power competition? I think it's all up for grabs, <laughs> uh, in a way. Uh, I think this whole contest between a free and open cyberspace and cyber sovereignty that, you know, is China's approach to cyberspace that they're pushing that's very attractive for a lot of governments mm. in Southeast Asia, and you can already see Vietnam and others going down that, that direction. Um, so I would say censorship is massively up for grabs. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Freedom of the Press uh, Index, uh, our region is more and more censored all the time. And I think a lot of countries are sitting there choosing, you know, mm. still unsure which which direction they should go in. Um, I think technology is a contest. Like there are, you know, the strategic... I mean, the debate we had here about 5G and Huawei, that debate is happening in every country mm. across the world. Mm. Uh, that's a contest. And then I think the influence side, the digital diplomacy, I mean, President Trump has rewritten the rules of digital diplomacy now. Uh, and... I think a lot of other countries are being a lot more bolshy online and a lot more feisty in the types of um, in their responses to both. I think his approach, but also in in just realizing that wow, we can't just sit back and watch this. We need to get our views. You know, when, when you put your views on social media, whether you're a leader of a country or a foreign ministry or defence or whatever, you're speaking to so many different audiences at the same time. And I think it's taken a, a lot of countries to realize. You know, you're talking domestically. You're talking to your partners overseas. You're talking to international publics. Um, we still really shy away from that in Australia, but a lot of other countries are having these very strange Twitter debates, which are having these, you know, which are sort of echoing across actual policy when they have fallouts, uh, you know, around the world. Um, and I think, well, yeah, I really think everything is up for grabs, actually, at the moment in this space, which makes it very interesting to work in. Yeah, I agree. I think. Uh it's the way that humanity is going to live is up for grabs. And the Chinese view is the citizens exist to support the party. Mm. And the Western conception is that the state exists to support citizens living free lives. And people, well, states are using technology to try and harness the world to to their worldview. Mm. China has a strategic view of how it's doing that. So it's kind of got an alignment of investment in technology and its laws. And the West, well, Europe's got the GDPR Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the US and Australia are 
sort of a moral vacuum in terms of regulation and around that, what we believe in. A moral vacuum in the sense that we just haven't articulated. It, well, yeah, we haven't articulated through legislation is perhaps a better way of saying it. I, I wouldn't say that we are actually a moral vacuum, but mm. the, the expression through laws is, is not as robust. Mm. Okay, well, let's turn to the second topic, um, which is election interference and, and disinformation. And listeners, I assume that all of you will be at least somewhat familiar with the 2016 election uh, and Russia's use of social media in particular to try to influence US voters and the fact that that may have had a meaningful impact uh, on the election given how close it was. And so what I want to focus on with you, Danielle and Tom, uh, is the role of, of technology companies now. And that it's been a few years. Uh, the midterms are obviously coming up and we here in Australia have our own election next year. And so what I, I am witnessing is an attempt um, by Facebook and, 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 and to a lesser extent, I guess, Twitter and, and, and Google to try to get out ahead of some of the policy pressures that are arising and, and, and the, the possibility that they may be more heavily regulated uh, in the future. And, and, and so they're trying to be proactive. Um, what are some of the things that they have been doing uh, to try to fix uh, what happened or prevent another 2016 from happening? I know that they've hired people whose express job is to think about ways to mess with Facebook. Or, well, I should say Facebook has hired those people. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the red teaming or adversarial model of how what are our weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, they've actually been educating campaigns on things like election security. So that's not just Facebook, but also Microsoft has been a strong promoter of that. And uh, there's, a, I think, an alliance around that. They've kicked off a large number of accounts and groups from their platform. Mm. So they've obviously been looking at what's been going on and trying to, I guess, tidy up what's there. Uh, FireEye, I think, uh, tipped them off about some Iranian pages and they got rid of them. The cybersecurity firm, yeah. FireEye, yeah. Do you, I mean, there's a, this is an age-old debate about sort of the extent to which we should be regulating companies. You know, they are motivated by profit at the end of the day and they're going to be reluctant to do things that cut into that profit. In your judgment, do you think that that what they're doing is enough or do you, do you see as an, sort of an inevitable endpoint a much heavier government regulation or even a breakup of a company like Facebook? I think there'll be more regulation. I, and it's not clear to me that breaking up Facebook actually achieves anything um, because what you're worried about is people misusing Facebook and breaking it into different parts doesn't necessarily... It's not, a, it's not obvious to me how breaking it up actually solves that problem. Mm -hmm. um, so Mark Warner, the US senator, had a paper, a think piece really, where he said, here's 20, 30 different suggestions for what you could do. One of them that I liked was actually allowing third parties to do some sort of research to try and identify bad things happening on Facebook. Um, so there's obviously problems with privacy in that proposal, but it actually gives some transparency. So the problem with what is that Facebook knows a lot more about what happens on Facebook than anyone else mm. does, and they keep that data private. 
for no doubt commercially and confidence reasons, mm. but also other reasons as well. And so as we concerned citizens have no way to know what is mm. actually happening in there. And perhaps in the past things were, I don't know, maybe they were more transparent, but it certainly seems like a problem. And I, it's not just Facebook, right? So there's other social media platforms which which are far less transparent and mm. far less motivated maybe to, to sort of do the right thing for democracy. So I think more regulation's coming. Uh, the challenge is to make sure that it's good mm. and actually achieves its purpose rather than not. Danny, and, and, I was going to ask you, or uh, and you can jump in, you started to the discussion talking about you know, your interest in information and, 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 and the way in which technology is enabling it and, and, and corrupting it sometimes. And that made me think of you know, the infamous algorithm, that Facebook is not a blank slate where people post things and, and, and we look at them. Rather, it is a filter and this sort of thing decides what we see and what we don't see. Mm. Uh, is that a place where regulation is needed or is it more a case of transparency and uh, and sort of at least so that we're aware? I don't know if regulation is needed in that space. And I think if we were to go down there, things would become quite dangerous quite quickly. Uh, but certainly you could have a lot more transparency around these algorithms. So, you know, if you were an organisation on Facebook, let's say you had 10,000 friends and you posted something, you know, you used to get let's say, an audience of 20% of your you know, mm. friends could see that post. And it's gone right down to about 2% oh, gosh. now. So I think that one of the things is, and it's really hard to figure out these stats as well, there's just not a lot of information on as the algorithms continue to change, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean for small you know, countries in Southeast Asia where a lot of their newspapers rely predominantly these days on their Facebook accounts uh, and getting information and connecting with the public that way. And when an algorithm changes really quickly uh, and people can't, you know, reach the audiences mm. they're used to, that can have a huge uh, impact. So I think one one thing Facebook's done quite badly is that they've experimented with that algorithm in lots of different smaller sort of countries around the world without really understanding the domestic political context in which they're running those experiments. Uh, and, you know, I mean, and all, all large companies do this. They'll run uh, their operations out of very big headquarters but won't spend a lot of time, you know, going in and out of particular countries. So I was in Papua New Guinea two weeks ago and I was speaking to lots of different public servants uh, and they were saying they didn't even know how to reach out to Facebook to talk mm. about the various issues they're having uh, with Facebook in Papua New Guinea. Uh, the Prime Minister threatened to kick out Facebook altogether and to, to shut it down. I don't think they'll they'll do that. But the fact that most of them didn't know who to actually talk to at that company that, you know, pretty much in PNG you have, you know, new, a couple of newspapers, uh, you know, a bit of radio, and then you have all these people online talking about politics. A lot of people have phones that are just Facebook phones. So it's a really important uh, network that drives discussion, uh, and they don't know who to talk to at, yeah. at Facebook. So I think that that happens a lot uh, around the world in, in these smaller countries. You know, of course, there isn't an office in the Pacific Island region unless they've started up one recently. Mm. Uh, and I suspect it's the people in Singapore going in and out, but but probably not enough. So I think, you know, more transparency and actually understanding what is going on in these countries where they hold a lot of, you know, sway that I think yeah. they never really expected. I remember when I went to the Philippines in 2000 and... 
13 for field work and I went to a local convenience store to buy a SIM card. And one of the options was a, a Facebook plan. And I didn't even yeah. know what that was. It didn't even occur to me that you could get a, a data plan that was just Facebook or, or Facebook was free and you'd have to pay for everything else. Yeah, and that's your internet. You yes. know? So Facebook and whoever you're connecting with and wh- whatever you're following on Facebook becomes your version of the internet, which mm. is also problematic. And it's the same with WeChat. You can get WeChat SIM cards. I'm sure a bunch of... Uh, you know, a bunch of different companies do it that way. But that's another sort of issue that, you know, we don't really think about. Here in Australia anyway. Well, anyway, yeah. yeah. So bringing it back to election interference, uh, Sheryl Sandberg uh, has called on sort of the American government to, to be more willing to share information. Uh, you know, our government intelligence services obviously have a, you know, a better sense of when another state may be targeting, um, you know, actors or, or entities inside uh, their own borders. But of course, you know, for obvious reasons, intelligence agencies, intelligence agencies have been reluctant to share what they know um, with the general public or with individual companies. Should we be expecting um, a greater, or an, is there a need for greater collaboration? Uh, should the Australian government and our intelligence agencies be more willing to share um, what might be secret intelligence and information with tech companies in order to help safeguard political processes and, and the public square? Yes. <laughs> Uh, I think there are lots of ways uh, that, and not just intelligence, but national security agencies, let's say, um, can get out information without uh, sharing actual, you know, top secret or secret intelligence. So uh, that might involve uh, intelligence and national security chiefs going out and speaking to the public a bit more, uh, writing in the paper a little bit more. Uh, getting their staff out and engaging with uh, businesses more, um, you know, even putting out. I mean, I'm quite shocked that in this day and age, given the amount of, given sort of how complex things have become, and we can't sort of sit behind this. I wrote about this before. This just trust us. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we've made this decision. We can't really give you context. Just trust us. I mean, that's not good enough anymore. That hasn't been good enough for a very long time. But I'm surprised that actually some of these agencies haven't come up with a sort of open source report. We've made this decision. Uh, we're going to release a uh, couple pages where we we've obviously have to redact a lot of information and we can't reveal methods and sources and access. Uh, but we're going to explain why we've made this decision in three pages. Uh, that really wouldn't be a, a hard transition. But I think the culture of it's a bit of a Canberra bubble culture, but the culture of national security community is to just, you know, not say anything, make these decisions, talk to politicians, talk to one another and not have this dialogue with the public. And I think that's changing, but it's changing far too slowly, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you and I are on basically the same page. I, my personal view is that intelligence agencies keep secrets because that's the default mm. position. And we really need an assessment of what the value is of releasing that information. So I think the Mueller indictment and several other indictments that the US has done of... Around the um, Russians. Particularly the Russians, but also the North Koreans, Mm. um, are super fascinating in the detail they reveal. But they also move the public debate beyond, oh, it could be a 400-pound... (laughs) <laughs> that guy in their bedroom. It, when you see the those details, it, it just blows past that kind of 
denial. <laughs> so I think there is tremendous value in releasing the right information for the right reasons. And I think the problem is we have a, a default no, where we should be more deliberate mm. about um, releasing it. All right, well, let's have a, some fun with a hypothetical. So there is a federal election coming probably next year in 2019. Uh, and Facebook has come out and said publicly that there will be a dedicated team of security specialists. Uh, this was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald, I think, in July, um, that will help safeguard the integrity of that election. Uh, how are we placed here? If there was one risk um, that you would want to warn the Australian Electoral Commission or the government about, what, what, what is our greatest vulnerability uh, to electoral interference, if any? I think that in the US election, probably my personal view is that the thing that may have swung the election is the release of Hillary Hillary campaign emails. Mm -hmm. And that kept that issue in the news for a long time when there wasn't any wrongdoing. It just contributed to a kind of feeling that Hillary was untrustworthy. So I think there's many, many things written in email that are that can easily be taken out of context. Not for public consumption, yeah. And, and made to look, all sorts of campaigns made to look bad. Mm. So I think that's probably the most uh, influential because it can feed a narrative that has a life outside of that information. So yeah. it sort of conforms to people's preconceptions. And it's probably also relatively easy to do. So when you're looking at a campaign, there's many, many people who have access to a lot of email. Mm. Um, and it's also relatively easy to make it look... Perhaps people will be more sceptical now, but it was relatively easy to make it look like it was just a, you know, a lone hacker um, motivated for whatever reason. Um, I think... Yeah, that's the one that I would put number one. I, I wrote, have a slide that I show my students uh, that Thomas Reed, who is an academic focusing on cybersecurity at, at Johns Hopkins. Yeah, I like Thomas' um, work. Uh, he showed this, to I think, in testimony to the, to the US Congress, and it was a picture of the page that John Podesta um, sort of received in his, you know, where he was supposedly getting a warning from Google that he'd been hacked. Uh, and this, of course, was uh, you know, a Russian operative who used it to, to dox him to get his password and then access all his emails, which were then released strategically during the campaign. And it looks real. I mean, it's, it's shocking uh, that if you're not paying very close attention, uh, that you you can uh, you can fall for these things. Do you guys have any sense of how our political parties are doing with cybersecurity? Do they look after their info? Do they have good habits? Um, <laughs> I've never seen anything in the media on this. Um, I, I should ask my friends who work in, in politics whether this is something that's taken very seriously or, or, or not. Certainly I've spoken to politicians who are aware. Um, they're also at times somewhat concerned about other politicians' blasé attitudes. Mm. And so I guess you the we had a number of semi-scandals about Twitter where people were liking various inappropriate mm. posts mm. Uh, or tweets, I suppose. And that makes me worry that even that that sort of thing happens makes me worry about the state of security. Um, 
Having said that, we've also spoken to CISOs at political parties who do take the issue seriously. CISO, uh, Chief, Chief Information, Information Security, Security Officer. Yep. Yeah, I suspect it's a very mixed bag yeah, there. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And, and politicians are just... Sorry, Daniel. No, I was just going to say, I was going to jump back to, you know, when we were talking about uh, political and election interference and you talked about, uh, you thought doxing was was the biggest issue. If I can jump on and add a yeah. second issue that I think is also really important is in the Australian government, uh, it's not clear who is in charge mm. of this. So, you know, I think it's great that Facebook's putting together a team. They're doing that across the world leading up to elections. Fantastic. Uh, but... There are, you know, dozens of different networks and chat apps where, you know, disinformation or covert cyber-enabled information ops could be run. And as far as I'm aware, and I spend a lot of time asking different (laughs) departments and agencies, who is in charge of this? Who is in charge of this? Uh, Most people don't seem to know, uh, which tells me that we do not have a group Mm. of analysts there looking across some of the bigger... uh, networks and chat apps, so let's say Facebook, Twitter, WeChat, I think is very important, watching the discussions in multiple languages mm-hmm. and seeing if a state or non-state actor is driving a particular outcome or encouraging people to vote for someone. So like in Canada at the moment, over the last week, there's been some super interesting media reporting that there's been vote by allegations of vote buying mm-hmm. going on on WeChat, mm-hmm. where a, a Chinese association friendship group uh, encouraged its member members via a private, very large group chat to vote for five particular candidates and offered to pay, you know, $20 transport fee mm-hmm. and breakfast and et cetera. Uh, I suspect that's going on on lots of different networks, on lots of different private chat apps across the world. Uh, but as far as I can see, we do not have a department or agency dedicated to looking for that mm. and then dealing with it when it mm. does happen. I think at the moment it vaguely sits with the AEC, but I very doubt that they have a group of analysts who speak a couple of different key languages mm. watching. And that to me is, is the biggest gap. You know, it's, if, you, if, if information is brought to them, I'm sure it can be dealt with, but I don't think we're actually looking for it in, in a sophisticated and structural way. Mm. Okay, well, uh, let's try to be a bit more positive, or at least the opposite of disinformation. Information, I suppose? Uh, Or digital diplomacy. Uh, Daniel, you've written about this, uh, and this, of course, is the extent to which the Australian government can use uh, digital tools to try to promote our interests abroad. How are we doing uh, on our digital diplomacy? Um, I think we're doing the same as we've been doing for a long time now, which is average. Um, it's It's been such a shame to me, and I think we've repeatedly dropped the ball on this. There are certainly individuals and particular diplomats out there who I think are really uh, passionate and proactive, but we don't have a whole of government approach. Uh, there isn't a, a sophisticated digital diplomacy strategy within DFAT. There are, of course, teams that focus on this, but in my opinion, they're hugely under-resourced. And I think, you know, I would like to take a bunch of people working in other parts of DFAT and Mm. throw them into this area uh, because, you know, I don't think it's... I don't think we have this sort of very clear and strategic narrative about where we want to go, and we're certainly not explaining that online. So what we have is what every country in the world has, which is... You know, Facebook accounts uh, linked to embassies and Twitter accounts linked to ambassadors. You might have the odd Instagram account. In China, we'll have the odd, you know, Chinese account 
But because of the lack of resources and there hasn't been, I think, momentum and drive behind this, it's pretty patchy. So, you know, one um, ambassador will be great because he or she is very interested Mm. and focused and that's fantastic. But he or she will then leave post and the next Mm. person might not be interested so the account will just sort of flitter away. Uh, Particular embassies at different times, you know, our embassy in Indonesia has been fantastic. Our high commission in PNG has been great. I mean, it's, you know, there's certainly a lot of good stories there, but there's no broader strategy. Uh, and I think, I think we're now in a spot where, you know, if we wanted to really pull our resources, digital resources behind and push for a particular outcome, I'm not even sure we could really do that. Uh, and I think, you know, until... It's decided that we'll take this really seriously and we'll put a lot of different types of people in this department and we'll make sure that the foreign minister's on board and our prime minister's on Mm. board. I think we're going to just keep having these, you know, dozens of social media accounts, dumping information online every day, very one-way communications channels. I mean, we haven't jumped to chat apps, for example. Actually, there's more people on chat apps, on the Telegram, WhatsApp, Line, et cetera, all of these apps in Asia that the governments in Asia are using to communicate with their own populations, but we're not using to communicate with them. So I think we've really missed the boat in this space. So it's not it's, it's still, you know, you said, let's move away from the depressing things. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of the upside. The upside is there's huge potential. Mm. And the upside is also that I think there are a lot of people in the department that recognise that a lot more could be done in this space. Uh, it just, they need resources and it, it needs momentum. Could the soft power review, that's just sort of ongoing now, that I did a submission to, not on this digital diplomacy, could that be a vehicle to add resources? Yeah, I think it could be. I mean, the problem is we've cut the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade every mm. year, year on year. Uh, and so they're only really limited in what they can do. So I think... Is it just resources or is it... It seems to me that the real-time nature of social media and especially Twitter, but even Facebook, doesn't really lend itself to the way that public service operates. Yeah, it's that as well. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's the a lot of... cultural problem. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of downside, right? You're an individual diplomat and you could say something with good intentions that just blows up in a way that a Trump tweet does. Mm. And Trump seems to be immune to these things or if he, he, he doesn't care if he suffers um, political blowback yeah. for a, a poorly worded tweet, which most of them seem to be. <laughs> but if you're a, you're a diplomat and, you know, these accounts are almost universally very boring because they're risk averse. And yeah. what's the incentive for an individual, you know, diplomat out in the field to be interesting, uh, because if they put a step wrong, then they're going to get recalled, and that's their career. Mm. So I, I, that's a really tricky, you know, needle to thread. I would have thought. But um, individual, the individual diplomats. I mean, you know, you've got the accounts at the ambassador level, but it's not like everybody's been let off a leash, and you have like thousands of diplomats out there at all different levels uh, publishing information. I've only ever seen ambassador accounts and maybe deputy, and mm. there's a couple, you know, thematic ambassador accounts. So most of them are not, you know, most of them are behind the organisations, the embassies pushing out Mm. information. I don't know. I think, I don't think we've seen very much go wrong, frankly. Uh, And what has gone wrong has been fixed really quickly. Uh, So I I understand why we're being risk adverse, but we seem to be more risk adverse than most other countries, uh, you know, engaging in this space as well. Hello, listeners. I am interrupting the conversation to tell you, well, that that's all there is for today's episode. Unfortunately, due to a rookie error by me as a podcast producer, we lost just a couple of minutes of the conversation in which we actually were talking about 
the dispute between Saudi Arabia and Canada that began on social media. And further, that meant we were not able to talk about the third topic I had planned to discuss, which concerned Huawei, 5G, and broader questions of technological independence. My apologies. It really was an amateur mistake by me, but I am learning and I don't expect it will happen again. And I'll just have to invite Danielle and Tom back on the podcast at a later date. I imagine if you've gotten this far, you might agree that the episode is already long enough. So that is all for today's special episode of Australia in the World. As usual, I want to thank AAA intern Stephanie Rowell, our research assistant, and Manny Bovell, our audio engineer, Martin Pierce of the Crawford School, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, and of course, AAA CEO Melissa Conley-Tyler for her constant support. Thank you and talk to you again soon. Thank you.